Rob Taze is a venture capitalist at Highland Capital Partners focusing on investment opportunities in machine learning. He writes a regular column for Forbes about the business implications of AI. Previously, Rob worked on strategy at the autonomous vehicle startup Zooks, a management consulting at Bain & Company. Rob received a joint JD MBA degree from Harvard University. Our discussion with Rob covers many topics such as AI industry trends, focus areas for VCs when considering AI capital investment, and the impact of deep learning applications such as radiology on AI commercialization. I'm here with Rob Taze, venture capitalist at Highland Capital Partners. Rob, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, We're going to dive a bit into your background first so we get to know you better and our listeners can uh, know who Rob Taze is. So you, your academic background includes a BA at Stanford, and you've also spent time doing your law degree and MBA at Harvard. Um, you're an investor here at Highland Capital Partners, having joined in 2019, but also you spend time with Silks doing strategy um, with those guys as well. You're a contributor to Forbes, and you write about the big picture in AI. So, Rob, can you, can you share what triggered your um, interest in AI and a bit more around your background in this space, too? So I really got interested and drawn into the AI and machine learning field through the realm of autonomous vehicles. So prior to joining Highland Capital full-time last year, as you mentioned, I spent the past several years pretty deeply immersed in, in the world of autonomous vehicles. I started on the policy side, actually. I worked in the White House um, under the previous administration in the very early days of Obama's administration figuring out what a regulatory framework could, could and should look like for autonomous vehicles. This was in 2015. Uh, and frankly, the government is still grappling with that question, but it was really interesting to be there in the early days and sort of think a big picture around how much autonomous vehicles are going to change so much about the economy and, and the society. Since then, I've, I've worked on AVs from a number of different angles. I worked on a part-time basis with Highland for a couple of years, helping lead their autonomous vehicle investment efforts. Um, so looking at autonomous vehicle companies kind of across the spectrum from the core AV stack, um, core autonomous vehicle technology, um, computer vision, simulation, et cetera. And then more recently, as you mentioned, I spent a couple of years um, helping lead the strategy team at Zooks, which is an AV startup here in the Bay Area. And then most recently joined Highland. Um, and, and when I joined Highland, kind of my decision um, as, I, as I was thinking through next career steps was, I think as passionate as I am about autonomous vehicles, and we can talk about that topic more, um, I came to appreciate more and more that machine learning was a topic that was going to disrupt so many different industries. And venture capital gives you that sort of broader aperture to look across the economy and see where different opportunities for disruption are going to emerge. Right. And how did you come into the VC world then? And again, it was, it was really for me this question of, I like to think of it as sort of depth versus breadth. Right. When I was at Zooks, I was very, very deep on, in the world of autonomous vehicles and all, you know, the, the business implications of that, the technology implications of that, the regulatory concerns. Uh, and it's a fascinating place to be, but I think I was drawn. The thing about VC that drew me more was the opportunity to have that broader perspective uh, and to look not just in transportation, but in agriculture and in manufacturing and in the field of law um, and in construction and a bunch of different industries and sort of think holistically around how is this technology, which really is a, is a transformative general purpose technology, going to change across so many different categories. 
Right, and we'll talk some more as well about AI further. Um, so looking at Highland Capital Partners, um, so some background for our listeners here. You were founded in 1987, and it's a four billion cap venture capital firm. You've offices here in New York, Boston, um, Bay Area, of course, in Palo Alto, and of course, and you've recently opened here in San Francisco. Your track record includes over 46 IPOs and over 125 acquisitions. Notable investments include Aris, Carbon Black, Newtonomy, Giganome, and Rent the Runway. Um, more recently, you invested also in Vector Robotics. Can you tell us a bit more around Highland's overall investing strategy? So I would say Highland, what we focus on at Highland in terms of identifying new investment opportunities are companies that have early signs of strong product market fit. Typically, that means a company that has a product in the market and there's very strong pull from customers. There's a clear market need and customers are reacting very positively. Generally, that means at least some amount of real revenue, um, You know, not just pilot revenue, but real recurring committed revenue. That can be at the Series A, that can be at the Series B, sometimes even the Series C. Uh, I think the names of rounds can sometimes be more, uh, less helpful than the actual stage that the company's at. Um, but that's kind of where we like to get involved. Things that we look for, you know, and, and Highland is a generalist firm. Uh, so we invest across all categories on the consumer side, on the enterprise side. I spend most of my time in the world of machine learning, but as a team, we look really across across sectors. And what we like to look for across sectors is companies that have, you know, first and foremost, amazing teams and specifically teams for whom there's great founder market fit, you could say. So people who are not just really impressive in the abstract, but who whose background positions them to be you know, the best people in the world to build this particular company. We like businesses that have recurring revenues. We like businesses that are capital efficient. We like businesses that are disrupting industries in fundamental ways, as opposed to kind of building an incremental solution on top of what already exists. We're open to looking at basically across different, different sectors and the Highlands philosophy is to be a really high conviction, low volume investor, if that makes right. sense, in the sense that we'll do, you know, maybe six or eight or 10 investments a year, but every single investment we make, we're really excited about. We typically take a board seat and we plan to stay with these companies through their entire life cycle. So still focused on HCP, you've yeah. opened your new location here in San Francisco. What has been the decision to have a geographic presence here in, in, in SF? Yep, Highland was founded in Boston uh, in 1987, um, and that, that remains our headquarters. We've had a presence in Silicon Valley since the uh, early 2000s, mm -hmm. um, so close to 20 years now. And we've been based down in, in the South Bay, in Menlo Park, and then in Palo Alto. Right. And like a lot of VC firms, just last year, we, the, as a firm, realized that there's just so much startup activity happening in San Francisco that it behooved yeah. us to have a presence up here. More and more young founders want to live in the city. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to be as close to the, to the startups and as close to the action as possible, it just makes a lot of sense to, to have a presence here. So we opened this office. We also actually opened a small office in New York last year as well. So uh, we feel it gives us really great coverage of, of really the, the few most important technology and startup markets in the US. Right. Um, so your investment area is machine learning and autonomous driving. And you've had work experience with Bain and Zooks, um, which we've, we've briefed on here, um, which gives you unique insights into the autonomous vehicle space. You've seen, we've seen a lot of consolidation um, here in the last few years and much disruption in terms of the business model, um, ability to scale. We look at the regulation impact. From your study, where do you see the AV space currently?
current play? I would say at the at the highest level, I remain as excited about autonomous vehicles and their potential to transform society as I ever was. The big thing that has been an important learning for me and frankly for the entire industry is just the time frame that it's going to take for it to fully yeah. come to fruition. And so I think long term yeah. autonomous vehicles, you know, will be a huge deal. And like if anything, they're being underhyped. But uh, I think we're in kind of this interesting phase where, at least if you're talking about sort of the core AI technology for robo taxis, like autonomous vehicles on the street, there are a handful of companies who are extremely well funded and who have been putting years into development efforts. You know, think of companies like Waymo, Cruise, I would mention Zooks, of course, Aurora. Mm -hmm. um, these companies are not, are honestly not really startups anymore. You know, they, they, in most cases, they have billions of dollars behind them and years of work behind them. Uh, and so I think it, it, it would be, formidably challenging for any new real startup, like a, like a series A startup or you know, two guys in a laptop to start now and try to develop the technology to, for a robo taxi. But even though from a startup point of view, the, the landscape is fairly mature, uh, we're still pre-commercial. So none of those companies that I mentioned have actually gone to market with yeah. a fully autonomous vehicle, except in very, you know, very controlled, limited um, environments, like very you know, few miles, area in Phoenix, for instance, in the case of Waymo. So I think we're in kind of this weird intermediate phase where like there's not very much VC activity on the core robo taxi side, but you still don't see these products in the market. And as a result, it's kind of leading to this like trough of disillusionment. I think there's obviously a lot, there's less like excitement and momentum around autonomous vehicles today. Again, just to sort of reiterate, I think long-term, the, the impact will be absolutely tremendous across so many different sectors, you know, the way, the way cities are designed, the way people get around. But today, I think there's probably less interesting investment opportunities for kind of traditional VC, Series A, Series B investors. Right. And following on from that, though, from an, uh, an investor's perspective, where do you see the vision of AV going in the next two to five years? Yeah. So I think one area that's really interesting to, to spend, that's fruitful for VCs to look at in the near yeah. term is the concept of applying autonomous vehicles in fields other than automotive. Um, and so there are a number of industries who involve, that, that involve the use of vehicles driving around mm -hmm. in uh, more constrained, structured environments, less complicated technologically. Right. Agriculture, exactly. construction, exactly. Mining. mining, yeah. Um, these are some of the biggest industries in the world, yep. um, but they're you know historically very under-digitized. Yep. So there's a huge opportunity to automate some of those more simple driving tasks. Uh, and you know, cost is one of, labor is one of the biggest parts of the cost structure mm -hmm. of those industries. Yep. And so there's huge, huge opportunity for value creation. And you, you, do, you are seeing some startups emerge that are addressing those those areas, I think the go-to-market will be tough precisely because those industries are historically under-digitized and so they're not used to buying sort of newfangled technology and, you know, there, there are very valid concerns around job loss as it relates to automation. And so I think there will be plenty of challenges, but I think in terms of where autonomous vehicles will be deployed in the next two to five years and have a big impact, I think some of those industries that you mentioned are, are probably going to happen first. And even something like Long distance trucking um, yeah. is another example of, of an application that's less technologically complex. You don't have pedestrians on highways. You know, you're basically driving a straight line. And I think th those you will probably see come to market before you see a truly level five urban robot. Right. Taxi.
Right. And so let's jump a small bit deeper then yeah. into one of these areas, which yeah. is around deep learning. Yeah. Um, so in your Forbes article, deep learning has limits, but its commercial impact has just begun. Yeah. You specifically mentioned radiology, and Jeff Hinton has stated that radiology is an ideal use case for deep learning. Yeah. However, AI adoption in healthcare, for instance, is relatively slow compared to other industries, yeah. such as transportation, fintech, or what we see across enterprise um, today. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's slow in those other industries as well. It's just, it's hard to bring an AI-based product to market. I think certainly in healthcare, also in transportation, as we talked about the difficulty of commercializing autonomous vehicles, I think in financial services as well. And I think a key point here is that there's such a huge gap between building the algorithm that will work in a, in a research study that can, for instance, as you mentioned, radiology, that can outperform a radiologist in identifying breast cancer and actually operationalizing a company around that. And things like healthcare and transportation mm-hmm. are particularly hard because they're heavily regulated industries. They're, you know, they involve a lot of safety critical situations, lives are on the line. And so you know, taking that algorithm that you've developed that can, can perform well and turning it into a company involves you know, developing a business model, developing a go-to-market strategy, navigating the regulatory concerns. In a lot of cases, selling into industries that are really slow slow moving, like healthcare systems, navigating those sales cycles. And so the whole thing takes years. And so I I think radiology is a great kind of case study of a technology that, from a purely technical point of view, machine deep learning algorithms probably are better than radiologists at spotting breast cancer overall. And yet, you know, we still haven't seen an AI startup built that's deploying AI at scale for for uh, diagnosis purposes. So I think there's just there's so much difficulty in the commercialization process and the op- operationalization process, which I think represents a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs that are mm-hmm. really willing to dig in and, and put the effort in. There. Yeah. Um, what is one commonly held view in the AI community today that you disagree with? Good, good question. <laughs> I, I would say, let's see. I think I think that there is too much of a focus and fixation on Big, on accumulation of massive data sets right. and specifically massive labeled data sets. I think there, you know, there's kind of this high level motif that like the more data you have, the better your models are, and like whoever has the most data is gonna win. And in general, more data does help you train better models, mm-hmm. but there are so many signs that it's this sort of quest for bigger and bigger data sets, bigger and bigger models is unsustainable from an environmental point of view from a cost point of view in terms of compute, like there are very few companies in the world that have the resources to actually train these world-class models. Mm-hmm. And also just from an efficiency point of view. And so I think there are techniques that are that you see emerging that are in some cases still in the research community or, or in very early days of commercialization that will let companies build AI models using way less data. So uh, at least way less labeled real world data. Right. So things like synthetic data where you can generate your own data set to your own needs. Um, things like few shot learning, small data techniques. I think these are essential if we want to build, be able to build AI that's more flexible and also less resource intensive. And I think there's too much of a focus now on labeled data, big data, supervised learning, and you'll see that shift more and more to more efficient models as we go forward. Mm-hmm. So rolling off that, and we're looking at it, it's early 2020. Um, what are you most excited about regarding AI startups this year? It's kind of a Highland specific answer, but a, a, right. a couple areas that I think are particularly interesting for mm-hmm. us. One is computer vision. I mentioned that Highland's focus is companies who have a product in the market and are you know, starting to build a real business. And computer vision has a lot of appeal for us in that regard because it's a little bit more mature 
of an underlying technology um, compared to something like language. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of companies that are building real products that are creating real value mm -hmm. in the market already, leveraging computer vision. In particular, we really like vertically focused computer vision companies. So a computer vision solution applied to property insurance or computer vision solution applied to agriculture or construction. Right. Um, there's just a lot of ways to automate things that would otherwise require a lot of humans and manual mm -hmm. labor and make it cheaper, make it faster, make it more accurate. So computer vision is one area we're spending a lot of time in. Another one is machine learning developer tools. And kind right. of the, the thesis here briefly is a lot of massive multi-billion dollar businesses have been built in, you know, over the decades providing developer tools for traditional software engineering. Think companies like Atlassian or GitHub. And developing a machine learning model is a fundamentally different task, a different workflow than writing traditional software code. It's much less focused on the writing of code, crafting hand rules. It's much more about handling the data and then setting the parameters properly to train the model. And so it's really a totally different skill set and it demands a very different type of tool. And right now there, there just are not really mature offerings for developing machine learning models. You see a lot of data scientists and, and ML engineers doing this kind of by hand or ad hoc or, you know, kind of not in a really streamlined way. So I think there's, I think huge businesses will be built providing tools that streamline that process of collaborating and error checking, version yeah. control, quality control, and managing data and so forth. Um, so that's another area where there's been tremendous startup activity in the past maybe 12 to 18 months, and it's an area that we're monitoring really closely. Right. Um, so for our listeners here who may have you know, founded an AI company and are in the early stages of that, or are thinking about um, starting an AI company, what are the top three things that you would look for when considering an AI startup for investment? So I think talent is, is, okay. is a big talent, one. Yeah. Uh, I think you know it's it's critical to have people that really have the the credibility and chops in the field, right. that, and that will help both with building the product and also, frankly, with recruiting other top folks. What do you guys like to see here when you look at ta teams for talent? I think it's I think it's less extensive professional experience and more. I think having an academic background in machine learning is right. helpful. Yeah. Sometimes the more recent of a grad you are the more up-to-date your sort of background and skill set is. So I think, I think talent is a big one. I think data strategy is a big one. How you think about developing, data, de developing your data assets in a way that will let you build a real ML product. And then I think a third one I would say is basically a business model and a go-to-market strategy that is robust. And a, basically a company that wants to build a product that's addressing a real concrete, well-defined use case you know, being vertically focused, for instance, is one way to do that. So if you say I'm building a product for the construction industry that does X, Y, and Z, as opposed to, you know, I developed this cool algorithm, let me go out and see like how I might be able to find a business right. use for it. Because at the end of the day, we want to back companies that are not just building great tech, but building great tech that solves a real business problem in the world. So I think having that go-to-market focus is really helpful. Yeah, and especially when you think about it from a buyer's perspective, right? So buying AI tech is still something that's been explored in a lot of companies in terms of the amount of investment that they're going to make. So a lot of them are you know, experimenting initially before they make those bigger purchases. So yeah. we have to you know, ensure there's balance then on the startup side, right? That they can go the distance and understand that the you know, the selling cycle is going to perhaps be longer um, as well in these cases too. Yeah. 
Yeah, we want to look a bit more at the big picture um, um, for now. So when we think about what's happening at a global level and we think about things this year, for example, US, we're in an election cycle. We've COVID-19, unfortunately, spreading outside of China. You've got, you know, facial recognition legislation, other legislation coming up in Washington um, around AI technology. And then, of course, there's a lot of global discourse on ethics in AI and so forth. What do you see as being the biggest macro challenges and opportunities for AI globally? Yep. In terms of global macro trends, I think there are two that I would call out as being particularly worth kind of tracking. Right. The first is this push for AI regulations. I think yeah. there's no question that governments around the world are going to start putting in place regulatory frameworks to address AI. Mm-hmm. The European Union just recently proposed something this week or last week. Uh, more and more members of the U.S. Congress are starting to talk about it. So you are going to see regulations put in place similar to, to GDPR in the data privacy context. And I, I think it's I think it's a good thing. I think it's an important step for governments and regulators to take. Um, and I think it will just be really important to track, you know, are they crafted in a way that doesn't stifle innovation too much, isn't too restrictive and in a way that won't be able to evolve over time. And it's just really important to be aware of as an AI entrepreneur or investor because it means that this era of technology development is will be different from for instance, the dot-com era or the SaaS era more recently, where companies were building software products and weren't really thinking about how is this going to, you know, how might this run afoul of regulatory concerns? How might this impact society more broadly? So that's going to be for sure another vector that is going to be really important to consider. And then the second macro trend that I would point out is something that's been widely reported on and is a favorite talking point, but kind of the dynamic and the tension between the U.S. and China in the right. field of AI, it is sort of the, it, it very much does feel like kind of a like a new a new space race. Um, you know, maybe minus the intensity of the Cold War geopolitical situation, but both both countries are both countries see AI as a key geopolitical asset, especially China. Um, China is investing tremendously to develop their prowess and supremacy, yeah. and their they, their government has really launched a sort of entire country effort to make them so their stated goal is to be the world leader in AI by 2030. And the U.S. government is starting to think about it more, starting to talk about it more. And so I think it'll be really interesting to watch how these two superpowers who, you know, there's a tension between them more broadly. And AI, I think, is going to become one major dimension of that. And it will have concrete implications for people both in the U.S. and in China working on the topic in terms of cross-border investment, in terms of cross-border recruiting and partnerships. Um, Hopefully, it's a dynamic that can be competitive, but also constructive and positive and peaceful. Um, but it's definitely a dynamic that's worth being aware of. Right. Um, so let's look more at a micro level now yeah. as well and look at AI companies themselves. I mean, we talked to a lot of AI startups regarding the dynamics of their go-to-market strategies, your pricing model, your you know how do you attract top talent and so forth. What do you see as being the key challenges for AI companies this year? I think another piece that's hard that every AI company I think is still figuring out is, is around scalability. Right. So basically, being once you've built a model that works in one context, being able to build technology and a business model that you can scale. And, and there are a few challenges specific to ML that companies are grappling with. One is just that it is being able to build a model that's generalizable. So that, you know, for the radiology example, a model that does well at identifying breast cancer in this, in this hospital, in this population of patients. But also, if you look to scale into a bigger business, you can use those algorithms in different communities and the, and the technique still works. And a lot of times that requires collecting new data sets from different, from different 
context, which can just take a long time and you have to label the data and everything. So building models that can scale and generalize. And then also there's still a pretty heavy, like AI services are not, don't work off the shelf in a seamless way, the way that like typical SaaS company, typical SaaS yeah. products do. Um, oftentimes there's still a pretty heavy services component. There's still yeah. a human in the loop. So that, you know, naturally limits how quickly you can scale if yeah. for every kind of like, for instance, machine translation product deployment that you have, you have to have actual humans in the background. The customer success team. Yeah, and the, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, th- so those are a drag on unit economics, yeah. but also are, are a drag on how quickly you can scale. And so I think naturally as the tech gets better, those question, those issues will be more resolvable, but it's something that you really see companies grappling with. Today. Yeah. And then of course it adds into the cost of the product versus, you know, again, what a buyer going to play, yeah. how does it, you know, the cost of like maintaining your product as well and then deploying it and so forth as well. Yeah. Um, Rob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah.